Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, science fiction writer Peter Watts discusses first contact with aliens and whether consciousness is necessary. The Sydney Science Festival has started. But first up, here's the news about sea fleas and smart drugs. eating you. Australia has a new dangerous creature to worry about. A teenager returning from football practice in Melbourne soaked his tired legs in the sea at Brighton Beach. His legs came out bleeding and the bleeding wouldn't stop. At the hospital they'd never seen anything like it. The following day his father went back to the beach, put some meat in the water and collected the little organisms that fed. He presented them for identification to marine biologists at Museums Victoria. The marine biologists identified them as sea fleas, Lysianisid amphipods, tiny crustaceans that scavenge on dead flesh. They are known to bite, but not to cause this kind of injury and ceaseless bleeding. The sea fleas normally scavenge dead animals and measure a half to a full centimetre long. Sea fleas are in oceans all over the world. They're very common. Marine biologist Jennifer Walker-Smith, who examined the sample, wonders whether the sea fleas have the ability to secrete an anticoagulating substance, as leeches do, to keep a wound bleeding. She suspects that the sea fleas may have been feeding on dead fish near the teenager's legs, and this could be why he was bitten so many times. Dr Walker-Smith said if he'd been moving instead of resting in the water then sea fleas would have had trouble hanging on long enough to cause these injuries. The problem is that the boy's father didn't do what his son did and soak his legs. Instead, he put dead flesh in the water, which is likely to have attracted scavengers rather than hunters. So the father may not have collected the same types of animals that attacked his son. We'd need someone who's attacked in the same way to bring a sample with them to the hospital to be certain. For some reason, most of the media are reporting that the teenager was bitten by sea lice, which are isopods, not amphipods like sea fleas, but also not known to cause injuries that keep bleeding. We may have to wait until someone is bitten again before we can confirm which animals are responsible, sea fleas or not, and how they're attacking. A Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning spokesman advises swimmers to wear a wetsuit with boots to reduce the risk of being exposed to sea fleas and to avoid swimming at night. The first real smart drug? Researchers from University College London in the UK and the Max Planck University College London Centre for Computational Psychiatry and Ageing Research in Germany have shown that propranolol amplifies your ability to think about thinking, metacognition. 
It can help you be more confident in whether you've made a good decision, not with blind chemical confidence, but by increasing your ability to recall and judge your own thinking, your insight into yourself. Propranolol is currently used for anxiety, tremors, high blood pressure, chest pain and circulatory disorders. It's a beta blocker which isn't recommended for people with asthma and a whole list of heart issues. Beta blockers work by inhibiting the body's response to adrenaline, lowering blood pressure and reducing the risk of heart attack. In recent years, propranolol has become the go-to drug for people with performance anxiety about interviews and public speaking. Propranolol has also been shown in mouse studies to improve cognitive abilities that have been reduced by the amyloid beta plaques associated with Alzheimer's disease and with cognitive impairment from corticosteroid treatment. Researchers reasoned that metacognition is likely to involve the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, two brain areas modulated by the chemicals dopamine and noradrenaline. To test this, they performed a double-blind, between-subjects, placebo-controlled study. They used three groups, consisting of 20 subjects each, matched for gender, age, mood and intellectual abilities. The researchers asked one group to take a drug that blocks dopamine and another group to take propranolol to block noradrenaline, either before or after a placebo. Another 20 people received two doses of the placebo drug. 80 minutes after receiving the second drug, the subjects performed a task in which they had to decide whether the overall motion of a burst of randomly moving dots was directed to the left or the right. The difficulty of the task was continuously adjusted so that the participants got the right answer about 70% of the time. But the participants didn't know this. When performing the task, the volunteers were all asked how confident they were in each of their judgments. The propranolol made volunteers more aware of their own performance. Without affecting the accuracy of their decisions, a person was more likely to say they'd been correct when they were and to know if they'd been wrong. Their metacognitive insight was boosted. The people that took the dopamine blockers and the placebo had no effects. Noradrenaline is released when there's unexpected uncertainty in the world, such as when we make a wrong decision. The researchers think that perhaps this burst of noradrenaline when you make an error erases the information about a task that you recently stored in your memory. This makes it harder to evaluate your decision because you don't have the information. There was no effect from propranolol on decision-making or reaction times. Metacognition is impaired in several psychiatric conditions, such as schizophrenia, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and compulsive disorders, where it can compromise decision-making and lead to misjudgments of your actual performance. This research points the way to improve metacognition to treat this anxiety, a smart drug that actually increases your insight instead of giving you a false sense of confidence. The paper was titled, Noradrenaline Blockade Specifically Enhances Metacognitive Performance and was published in the journal eLife. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. 
And now a blast from the past. Back in 2001, I visited the Toronto Trek Science Fiction Convention with my trusty cassette recorder with built-in microphone and recorded a chat with Canadian science fiction writer Peter Watts. Peter writes hard science fiction based on cutting-edge science and exploring thorny philosophical problems. His stories are dark, funny and insightful. At the time I spoke to him, he was writing the novel Blindsight, about first contact with aliens that raises the question, what is consciousness good for anyway? I asked him about the story he was writing, but to tell me first how he became a science fiction writer. I was essentially a marine mammologist for 20 years. I have basically been paid by the animal rights movement to defend marine mammals and the United U.S. fishing industry to blame marine mammals and the Canadian government to ignore marine mammals. And after 20 years of this, I decided that since I was fictionalizing science anyway, I might as well add some characters and plot and try and write for a bigger market than the Journal of Theoretical Biology. So my first novel was Starfish, New York Times notable book. It's doing well. The sequel is coming out this fall. In between, there is a little dick-ass collection of short stories called Ten Monkeys, Ten Minutes from a small, obscure uh, press in, in Calgary. Um, I don't know how well that's doing, and I don't really care. The next novel I'm, I'm actually planning on writing actually is a first contact story. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, uh, it's, I, I hope it's going to be sort of the ultimate kick-ass first contact in that the, the aliens will be biologically plausible, that the signals will be... The hook is if that, in effect, we, we pick up a, an alien um, radio transmission and we get all excited about it, but in fact, as it turns out, we're not actually receiving a transmission that's intended for us at all. What we're essentially getting is the equivalent of, at the next stroke, it will be 3 o'clock precisely, but it's simply a... Uh, a timekeeping signal that is is being basically broadcast around the universe to keep various planets on on uh, on the same sync. And the reason it started, the reason we have just recently picked it up is because somebody has essentially just set up a base in our backyard in a root cloud or something, so we have to go and see it. And ideally, the way I would like to see it handled would be to have you know an entire season concentrating on simply receiving signals, no special effects to speak of, uh, an entire story arc basically built around the, the religious fundamentalists' responses, the politicians' responses, the human response just to the revelation that we are not alone. And follow that with, you know, an exploration of a truly alien... I think the problem with... with um, you're walking a bit of a fine line in that you can't make an alien too alien because wherever it is, whatever it's come from, it's, it has been forged in Darwin's universe. So it's going to have certain self-interested motives. It is going to... It will be a product of natural selection. So in a, a very real way, it will be much like us. And by us, I include everything from sequoias to, you know, blue whales to, to people somewhere in between. But on the other hand, it will be different because it is, after all, alien. And I think the, the danger that a lot of us as, as sort of writers tend to encounter is that we, we tend to make things either too much like people in rubber suits because we've been too inspired by Star Trek, or not enough like people in rubber suits. Because just in the... the in the rush to make something truly alien, we uh, create something that's biologically indefensible. I think a good example of that would be, you know, you read The Gods Themselves, I think, yeah. Now, that was, in many ways, a damn fine book. But the aliens in that book had three sexes. Yeah. And there are all sorts of really compelling evolutionary reasons why you would never get a three-sex system showing up. Sex itself developed as a countermeasure against parasites. Basically, it was something that allowed the genes to keep shuffling so that the parasites wouldn't be able to get a target lock on our immune system. Gender 
the idea of male versus female, is something that resulted from competition within the species. A bunch of us started producing small gannies because they were cheaper to make and they could flood the market and they brought you know fewer and fewer nutrients to to the ova. And as a result, you got this sort of a divergent evolution where where at one end of the scale you had to have something producing only a very few large eggs, just loaded with nutrients. And at the other end you had millions of these fire and forget missiles basically loaded with the blueprints and a, and a delivery system, but nothing else. Essentially in that sense, males are parasites on females because we're basically using the female to gestate the offspring with just the egg because the egg is so many thousands of times larger. Basically the female's got the whole the whole has to pay the whole cost. We don't have you know two sperm getting together. They've got the genetic complement, but they don't have the uh, they don't have the nutrition nutritional complement. So the idea of, of gender evolving that way involves a sort of a twin peaks of fitness. You can Could you get a third species being involved. Larry Niven with his puppeteer aliens, they have three sexes. There's really there's a male, there's a female, and there's a receiver. So sort of like digger wasps or other sorts of creatures that implant their embryos, their, their fertilized eggs in another creature to gestate, they, they evolve with a third species. I could see, yeah, if, if, if you're talking about essentially a host, yes. where you simply get a parasitized, I mean, I don't know if I would consider the, the victim of an human wasp to be a third sex. Well, if you were an intelligent species and they were also, you it, might consider them... You could, I, could see, I could see perhaps taking a... Um, what you're basically talking about is surrogate mums. And I suppose you could do a series of, uh, you know, selective breeding program or genetic engineering. You could take one sex and sort of turn it into a, turn it into almost sort of a, a, an evolutionary blind alley, a little degenerate female that, that essentially acts as a, a brood sack. Yeah. And that would, yeah, that would work. That wouldn't be strictly a separate sex. No. But actually, that's a really cool idea. You start off with two sexes and then one of them forks. Yeah. But you couldn't start with three sexes because You've essentially got a range of strategies here, and you've got fitness mm -hmm. that is high at both ends of the range, but is low in the middle. So you can have two sexes. You can either put all your money into all your eggs in one basket, or you can make a million baskets with no no yolk around the egg. Right. But if you try and have it both ways, you're going to fail in both. And that's really the only place where a third sex could come into the landscape, and it mm -hmm. simply wouldn't succeed. So the idea, and, and based on the movie with James Caan, uh, Alien Nation series, oh, okay. they also had, you know, the three sexes. And I think they're just throwing in, I mean, for some reason people seem to think that three is alien. You watch uh, the space above and beyond get down here. Yeah. You know, they're all the, the alien spaceships have sort of these weird tripartite, yeah. you know, the 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 Martians in the, the 1950s adaptation of War of the Worlds had the three eyes. It's yeah. like, we need something that looks alien, it's got to have sort of ram, ramans do everything in three. Yeah. Why the hell is three such a... The puppeteers are three-legged. I mean, they're very cool. But uh, uh, in any one particular case, I think that, that you know, tripartite alien is very cool. But it, it almost seems to... It's become a cliché that if you want something to be truly alien and you don't want anybody to ask too many questions about it, you, you give it a tri-radiate axis. And, <laughs> and I think maybe the three sexes sort of came along, sort of rose from that, that mindset, and it just doesn't work. So the aliens will have to have a maximum two sexes from our understanding. Except that your idea, I really like your idea of a degenerate, all, you know, accessory sex. 
I mean, I have to admit, I hadn't thought of that, and that is really damn cool. <laughs> you can steal that. <laughs> it's Larry Niven's idea. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I wish it was mine. <laughs> but so, with really different sorts of aliens that we were trying to communicate with, um, another author, C.J. Cherie, her series with Chenur, Pride of Chenur, and the whole series... And I have not read any of her stuff, so well, I can comment on it. What I, what I, just an example I can bring up, amongst all the species that trade and there's a whole confederation of aliens that don't include humans at all at this point. Right. There's one that's so alien that they're very difficult for anyone to communicate with. They there's this huge victory in, in the galactic history of communication because they used to just come along, smash through, take what they want and leave, and people generally were happy if they survived. <laughs> that was the, the level of communication people had. Somebody managed to get the idea of trade across to them. So that now they come through, they smash things, they take what they want, and sometimes they leave things. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. The um, the idea of of an alien that's so alien that you can't have any communication with it is, I mean, it's, it's not all that uncommon. Um, Delaney played around with it in Stars in My Pocket, Stars in My Pocket, I think, is fan. Nancy Kress is doing it now with her fallers, uh, Probability Moon, Probability Sun. Not a great book. I, I read The Advance of Probability Moon and I wasn't that impressed with it. Is um, it a hopeless case if they're that alien or is it just that of being more clever and... I think, I think it's just a question of the writers decided we're going to make him so alien that we can't talk to him. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's been a number of short stories along that idea. And I think, I think it's very effective in that, you know, there is no common ground. But again, from a, a biological point of view, Unless these things are, you know, victims of special creation and God just created them to be wonky, they're going to have a lot of the same drive. They they may not have sex, but they're going to have something that promotes reshuffling of the genes, or they're going to have eliminated any sort of pathogens from their environment. They don't necessarily have to be intelligent in order to have high technology. Uh, they don't necessarily, and this is something that I think is a very cool idea, which is, is sort of the centerpiece of, of this, this novel I'm working on. They don't have to be conscious. Now, from an evolutionary point of view, I can't see what the benefit of consciousness is. Like, I can imagine something. I can imagine a robot named the Inwolf that has algorithms built into a reflex arc so that when it puts its hand down on a hot stove, the nerves fire and a reflex kicks in to pull those nerves, you know, pull that hand away. Okay? Now, Ian Wolf does that. And it is not distracted. It is not conscious. It is not aware of the pain. I do that. I'm in agony, right? <laughs> and I am, during that point, I am distracted, I am impaired, and something can come along and pick me off. So from the point of view of natural selection, we should not be aware of anything. You wouldn't believe... But you're not when you take your hands off the stove. As a conscious being, conscious human, you put on, you take it off, and afterwards you think, oh, I did it for that reason. But you didn't actually do it. Well, I am not talking. The automated part of yourself did. Fair enough point. I am not talking actually about the about the retraction. I am talking about the subjective perception of the pain afterwards. Oh, okay. The pain afterwards. That you are feeling the pain, and you wouldn't believe. You probably would believe the number of animals. And unfortunately, that woman isn't here to tell you know. Excuse me, of sharing too much. The number of animals that get eaten in the act of sex. Because, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't mean eaten during the act of sex. Uh, that's actually a bit of a, of a myth. That doesn't really happen. Ah. It's a very cool myth. But <laughs> there's, and there was actually a myth that had a, a 
certain amount of biological, apparently there is these repressor ganglia, and you have to chew off the repressor ganglia in order to, to instigate the, but you, you have to, again, wonder how natural selection would promote something like that. But just animals busy hunting, getting eaten by other predators who come by, and they just don't notice. For that matter, you know, how many of us have been caught in a electro with, with, you know, not hearing the other guy coming up the stairs? Not being consciously aware of these things does not mean you can't have intelligence. I mean, beat Blue, you know, beat Kasparov, chess. It's, it's a very limited kind of intelligence. We're getting... Zombies, basically. Yeah. You could have people... Well, there's an argument in artificial intelligence and consciousness research that, that some people aren't... Consciousness isn't automatic in humans. Some people have it in some birth, and it's hard to tell when different sometimes. There was a book called The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bacchimal Mind, Julian James, in the 60s. And I got as far into that book as the phrase mounding fullness, and then I threw it across the room. So as far as I know, it could be a very good book. I'm, 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 I'm aware of the premise, but I found the guy's actual prose style right to the point of offensiveness. So I just couldn't deal with it. But I guess the premise was that the ancient Greeks were not conscious. That's what he said, yes. And that consciousness is actually something that occurred as a late-breaking development within recorded history, and you could actually see in changes in the literature and so on, the point at which the species woke up. And uh, Stevenson hung a, a major element of snow crash on that premise. Yes. And the idea, I love the idea in that book, that, you know, the first computer virus was written on clay tablets in ancient <laughs> Sumeria, and that it was a, an algorithm to kickstart consciousness in human beings. I mean, I thought that was a wonderful idea, but on the other hand, you may want to go back and kill the guy who, that, who hacked that original kickstart, because how much better would we have turned out if we were not conscious of things, if we still had the intelligence, we still had the language, but we weren't constantly, there wasn't this little homunculus sitting behind the eyes, second-guessing everything we're doing. In a sense, that homunculus doesn't even... It does have a function, though. Does it? Well, if your brain has problems, if you are ill or you're injured, and bits of your brain shut down, specialized bits of your brain shut down, the parts of your brain concerned with social interactions, the parts of your brain concerned with looking after, eating and sleeping and whatever, they break down the intellectual, the conscious homunculus can take over and go, well, I think this is probably what would normally happen. This is what I think you should do instead. But is consciousness necessary for that to happen? I would argue that not only is consciousness, not, only is consciousness not necessary for it, but that consciousness isn't even involved in it. They've done tests where people are sort of have to look at a series of stimuli on a screen and hit a button when they see a particular stimulus. And they've run, like, you're familiar with these studies? They've actually basically found that when the person says, when the homunculus says, this is the decision I'm going to make, the electricity is already three-quarters of the way down the person's arm. That in fact, what happened is it was some guy down in engineering that made the decision. They sent a memo up to the old fart in the CEO's office, and he said, good idea, glad I thought of it. Yes. But in fact, all that did was slow down the process. The decision had been made, and we perceive it as conscious volition on our part. That's but if it is conscious on our part, then why the hell was it already in process before we consciously realized we had made that decision? That's what I was referring to earlier about the automation that's already in the brain that we yeah. aren't so aware of. That a lot of us are zombies. Well, everyone's really is a greater, greater degree than they realize is already a zombie doing the yes. automata. And the little homunculus just rides along and thinks it's in charge. It actually justifies and rationalizes what's already happened. The homunculus. The homunculus is a good parasite. Is what it is. <laughs> Okay? It's like we should free ourselves from these homunculi. But 
We are we are the homunculi. We are the homunculi. Let me change. That's the problem because if we if we go with your idea of needing uh, technological species that are intelligent without being conscious, without having their own homunculi, the homunculi is where a lot of the, the urge for communication comes from because homunculi is lonely. I would suspect that you're you're falling into the trap of saying because this is the way we do it, this is the way it has to be done. That natural selection will, if natural selection is going to promote communication, natural selection will, will generate a ways of, I mean, you can have things communicating. I mean, plants communicate with each other. Plants communicate with insects. There's ways of communicating that don't involve consciousness. And the fact that we happen to use consciousness for communication is a little bit like the pimp saying, hey, I handle all your books. I deserve, you know, I am an essential part of this prostitution business. That's why I get 80% of your income because I handle the bookkeeping. This doesn't mean that the hooker herself or himself could not also handle the bookkeeping. It's just stone self-servant <laughs> to consider himself an integral part of the process. And I think that you this applies both to sort of small-scale pimps and, and large-scale pimps such as governments themselves um, have basically managed to convince us to a large extent that they are necessary because look at all the things they do. But the, the unspoken, you know, the unspoken addition to that is you know, I'm, this would never happen if we didn't do it. And I, I think that's an unwarranted assumption. You know what occurs to me? If we're going to keep this up, like this round, why don't we go down to a bar? And go to the bar we did. That was marine biologist and science fiction writer Peter Watts talking about writing biologically plausible aliens. You can read his blog and find extra material about his stories at rifters.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons in supporting me at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, and 3MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 900 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.